everyone. This is the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast. This is Rodney Benner. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at Shelbourne Knee Center and Scott Bauman from our research departments here tonight. And tonight we're going to kick off a, uh, a multi-week series on patellofemoral instability. There's a lot to cover with this topic. Uh, tonight we're going to talk specifically about uh, initial evaluation and management. And we're going to also hit a classification system that we've developed at our office to try to compartmentalize patellofemoral instability uh, in some ways that can help us guide treatment. And as we go along, we're going to talk to Dr. Shelbourne himself uh, to talk about how this is, uh, what the history has been like of this problem and how we've developed our protocol over a number of years. We're going to talk to someone from our physical therapy department as well about rehabilitation, something for the therapists in the group, uh, and then talk about surgical techniques as well and hit some uh, hit some results that we've had from prior studies. So we're very excited about this, uh, like I said, multi-week series on patellofemoral instability. And Scott, uh, we're here to kick this off tonight. Yeah, I would agree. I th- I'm pretty excited about it as well. And, and it's one of those topics that's going to be great for both audiences with the, with the surgeon group as well as the therapy group. Because as people know, when they treat these injuries, especially with things like first-time injuries, uh, that may lead more to a rehab route. And then the recurrent patella dislocations could potentially lead to a surgical route. And, and obviously, both parties would be involved with that. So I think it's going to be a good good series and kicking it off here with evaluation and looking at the methods for that just starting off here what's the what's the typical caseload or the number of patients you see that have a patella dislocation versus some other injuries when we've looked at our at our research at uh, at Shelbourne Knee Center, just looking at what, what's the number of patients that we've been able to treat with this over the course of Dr. Shelbourne's career and, and myself and our other partner that we had with us for a while, we've done about 7,000 ACL reconstructions. When we look at patellofemoral realignments, we've done about 700 of those. So it's one-tenth, uh, in our experience, one-tenth of the volume uh, of patella dislocations that we treat surgically as opposed to ACL reconstruction. So if you think, um, you know, the, the majority of surgeons that do ACL surgery, uh, I believe if I remember right, it was something like 85% of surgeons that do ACLs do less than 10 a year. And if you look at that number, the majority of people are doing less than 10 a year uh, ACL reconstructions. That means maybe they're seeing one or two patella dislocations uh, that are surgical per year, uh, which is not a very large volume to see. So it's it's something that uh, I think that, that we don't have anywhere near as much contact with uh, in sports medicine as ACL reconstructions and meniscus tears, things like that, that we see a lot more commonly. Now, when you get a patient in your office that comes in, they said they had an injury two or three days ago and they start telling their story. And when I hear those initial evaluation subjective exams, uh, to be honest with you, a lot of times they sound similar between patellar dislocations and, and ACL tears up until some some certain differences. But is there anything throughout that patient story that you're looking for to start leading you down the route of thinking this may be a dislocation versus some other type of ligamentous injury? Well, there's definitely a lot of crossover between this and other types of acute knee injuries. And I always tell patients when they come in and they tell me that they had that their knee gave out, that it was a big deal injury. They got taken off the court. They planted and twisted and they felt a pop, those kind of things that will have us all thinking about ACL ACL injuries. Um, that kind of story is an ACL tear probably 80 or 90 percent of the time before we even lay hands on the patient. We can tell that that's uh, the main thing on the differential diagnosis. And that's most likely the, the answer. Uh, so, of course, if that's that, if that's the answer 80 to 90 percent of time that means 10 to 20 percent of the time is something else uh there are things like hyperextension uh anterior tibial plateau fractures that present kind of similar to acl acl injuries there are you know fractures sometimes it can can happen or tibial spine avulsions things like that uh can 
present in the same way, obviously, because in that case, it's pretty much the same injury, just a bone bone injury instead of a ligament injury. Uh, and then there's things like patella dislocations that, that can happen as well. So I think when it comes to the initial history, the good thing about patella dislocations is usually people will just come out and say, I felt like my knee came, came out, kneecap came out and came back in, or that, that I looked down and my kneecap was on the side of my, was on the side of my knee. And then it, and then it clunked back in, uh, to the, to the middle. Um, so from a, from a history standpoint, that, that is often, that's often a, uh, something that can point us in that direction from a physical exam perspective. I, I find that these patients often get really swollen. Uh, so that's, uh, that, uh, maybe a little bit larger effusion than other acute knee injuries and they don't lose as much extension initially. That That's one thing that I do notice being different between when patients present with ACL tears versus when they present with patella dislocations, the ACL patients that uh, ligament flips up into the front of the knee, kind of balls up into the front of the knee, and the patient can't go straight because there's a mechanical block of the torn ligament that's, that's flipped up in the middle of the knee. With a patella dislocation, there's nothing keeping you from having full extension. So a lot of times you go in there thinking it's an ACL reconstruction. You go and check the patient's range of motion, and they can go pretty easily into full extension just like their other side. That sometimes will be a red flag to me that, you know what, this may not be an ACL tear. This may be a patella dislocation instead. So after talking with the patient, and you're you're pretty sure that you're dealing with a patella dislocation as opposed to some other type of acute knee injury. Are there any other questions that you're asking this patient specifically to get more information? Yeah, one of the differences with patella dislocations versus other types of injuries is that they can be recurrent a lot of times, and they've had, patients will have had uh, multiple instances of this. So once I'm starting to go down the route of patella instability, then I start asking the patient questions like, um, has this happened to you before? Have you felt like your knee slipped in and out of place before? It, when this injury happened, uh, how big of an injury was it? Was it an athletic injury where you were running, running fast and jumping high and putting a lot of force on the knee, or did you just simply turn around walking through the kitchen one day and felt like your kneecap gave out. And then I also want to know about the severity of it. Uh, did it just feel like it came out and came back in or did it actually dislocate, completely dislocate lock out of place? Did it require sedation and reduction? Did you have to go to the emergency department to get somebody to put it back in? Um, you know, things like that. I want to know a little bit more about the history to know whether this is the first time this has happened or whether it's happened multiple times on this knee. And I also want to query them about has this happened before on your opposite knee because as we'll talk about down the road sometimes there are anatomic variants that uh, predispose people to patellofemoral instability and when that happens it often happens bilaterally so if somebody comes in with a first time right knee patella dislocation then I'll ask them have you heard this one before and you know sometimes the answer will be no it's the first time it's ever happened well what about your other knee oh yeah the other one's come out six times before just like this, but it hasn't been this bad. Uh, and you can start then to think about, uh, is there some sort of predisposing anatomy to this? So, uh, you know, once that, once we're thinking about patella dislocations, we do move down a, a little bit different, uh, different line of questioning, uh, as we're taking that history. So after those follow-up questions and you're pretty sure you're dealing with a patella dislocation, what are the, what's the objective exam look like? Are there any type of special tests that you're doing? Are you still trying to confirm or uh, rule out any other injuries um, after that exam? 
Yeah, you definitely have to do a full knee exam of, uh, still, even though you start to think that might be the case. Uh, you know, there sometimes you may think somebody's dislocated their patella and then you pull on their knee and they have, and they've had an ACL tear. I had one, uh, collegiate athlete, for example, that I, I had done a previous patella realignment for a first time patella dislocation. And she went on, did well, finished her high school soccer season, went on and played in college. And then, uh, dad called me and said, you know, she hurt her knee again, um, dislocated her kneecap again. She went and saw the team doctor and they think that the kneecap came out again. We need her to come see you. Uh, and when we, when we got, got her in the office, talked a little bit more about the details. Uh, it was actually an ACL tear. So we ended up doing an ACL reconstruction. It was not a, 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 a recurrent patella dislocation. So always important to keep all those conditions in mind, still do a good ligamentous exam. A lot of times patella, uh, patella dislocations can happen concomitantly from time to time with MCL injuries as well as the knee kind of falls into valgus and that patella goes laterally. Sometimes the, the knee will kind of collapse towards the medial side into a valgus, uh, in t- valgus type injury and the patient will end up with an MCL tear as well. So definitely a full ligament ligamentous exam, make sure there's no uh, ligamentous pathology that we're missing. Uh, we also like to look at a couple things in particular on physical exam with patella dislocations. First being, uh, does the patient have a J sign and by a J sign with full extension, when they get to full terminal extension, does the patella start in the middle of the groove and come all the way up straight. And then at terminal extension kind of dip over to the lateral side in kind of a J shape. Uh, and that tells us that the patient may have patella alta, that they may have a long patella tendon, a higher located patella uh, that could come out of the groove with full extension and predispose them to, uh, to patella instability. We also want to check for medial retinacular laxity. So I like to move the patella medially and laterally and compare it to the uninjured knee. I also like to push on the lateral side of the patella and kind of medially translate it. So you're kind of tightening the lateral retinaculum, loosening the medial retinaculum, and then put my thumbs underneath the medial edge of the patella and try to lift it up, almost tilt the patella onto the lateral edge of the patella to see uh, if that's different side to side. A lot of times if that medial retinaculum tears, you'll be able to lift up the patella uh, on the medial side in a way that you can't on the other one. And when that happens, that does point us to some medial retinacular laxity that if it ends up coming to surgery that we might have to deal with. So we're looking really at both anatomic and some uh, you know traumatic factors with physical exam got a question for you what uh, when we see these patients acutely they're often very swollen they're very stiff so uh, talk a little bit to the therapists that may be listening about what our initial therapy management is like yeah, you hit it right there. Initially, we see these patients uh, right after you see them in the office, and they're usually a few days out, let's say, from from a uh, patella dislocation. They're going to be acutely swollen. First things first, we got to get that swelling down. So we're talking about swelling management, and that's your typical rice principles of uh, rest, ice, compression, elevation, you know, all that good stuff. But that needs to be taken care of first. And with the acute first-time dislocators, a lot of times the rehab in the acute phase is really getting back to the basics. It's getting the swelling down, making sure motion is full. A lot of times, uh, as you had mentioned, in comparison to ACL tears, these patients generally have pretty good extension range of motion. Their flexion is going to be down because of the swelling loss, and you'll see that naturally come back as their swelling goes down. But you're you're hitting the swelling, you're working on full hyperextension equal to the other side, and progressing flexion with time. 
once swelling goes down, the flexion will still be a little bit tight. Sometimes that's generally due to uh, apprehension or the fact that they've uh, just haven't had their full flexion back for, you know, a couple weeks maybe, but that's really all it takes is, is two, three, maybe upwards of four weeks. If you're talking about somebody with some significant swelling, but it's really back to the basics in the, in the early going. The other thing that I wanted to mention in the acute rehab phase with these patients is leg control. That's going to be the other thing that's that we work on quite a bit, uh, working on simple things, things like quad sets, straight leg raise, knee extension off the side of the table, and all this done with, with pretty much no weight, maybe a little bit of low weight for, for the patients that can tolerate it. But at, after an acute injury, a lot of times those, those joint surfaces may still be uh, acutely flared up to the point where they're not going to really tolerate a lot of a lot of weight, even with the with the uh, things like straight leg raises and things. So, uh, a lot of quad sets and straight leg raises. We don't use a whole lot of e stem, but I, I know a lot of therapists would in this scenario because it's a good way to to keep that quad going in a in a low impact way that's not going to flare that patient up. So this would be an indication that I think you could use some, some E-STEM to work on that quad contraction, especially for those patients that really have uh, a version of a quad shutdown, even in a you know non-operative setting that that could potentially happen if they're, if they're um, not using that knee normally like they would after this type of injury. Yeah, it's interesting. We really see a wide variety of patient presentations as it relates to early rehabilitation. As you said, sometimes patients have come in, uh, you know, they've been seen by a school athletic trainer, they've been sent to an emergency department, they've had their kneecap reduced. Uh, maybe they've seen, maybe they get referred to a physician office who may, to an orthopedic physician's office who may or may not have seen many patella dislocations and who says, you know, maybe it takes a week to get into their office. And then by the time you get there, they say, you know what, I think we need to refer you on to more specialty care with a sports medicine provider or a, a knee specific physician. It's another, you know, several days till they get in. And sometimes these patients show up in an immobilizer on crutches, haven't moved, haven't lift their leg in two to three weeks and the, and they're looking pretty rough when they initially get to us versus the ones that sometimes hurt their, you know, hurt their knee the night, you know, at eight o'clock during a, during a, uh, a soccer game or something. And by eight 30, the next morning, they're calling our office to get in by noon, by noon that day. And we can, we can see the patient a lot quicker. So speak a little bit about that. Just kind of the, the variability in, uh, in, in presentation when you, when you have to see them initially as a therapist. Well, you mentioned it right there. The variability is huge, especially when you're talking about the time you see them from injury. But I would go one step further from that and talk about the variability from uh, first-time dislocators to, let's say, second, third, fourth or so. You know, mm -hmm. you have a first-time dislocator and you you run into the scenario that I was talking about initially where they're acutely swollen. You're working on uh, getting that last degree or two of extension. They may be, you know, bending to... 95, 100 degrees compared to 140, 145 on the other side. And again, some of that's swelling, but some of it is just the fact that they are apprehensive about it. Or like you said, they've been an immobilizer and you're working on the, the quad sets and things like that. But you, you can compare that to somebody who is dislocated for the fourth or fifth time. You see them even three days later swelling for sure but their quads are there their motion is nearly full yep. they're they're pushing things i don't know if that's necessarily a physical thing or more of a mental thing where they know what to expect or they're just physiologically not responding to the injury as, as much i i really don't know the answer to that but we usually move those patients into strengthening pretty quickly and that's going to follow pretty much the the same philosophy that we've talked about with with other types of injuries we try to get the motion equal to the other side get the swelling down and then work on strength but with those first 
first time dislocators, it they're in that acute phase for for two or three four weeks versus the uh, recurrent dislocators is if they're not looking at surgery or, or not wanting to pursue that route for whatever reason, whether it wasn't advised or they're in the middle of a season and they want to try to get through and they want to, and they're structurally okay to, to do so those, those patients push a little bit faster. So even with, with the same type of injury, the variability is, is quite high. When these patients try to return to sport, what are some, you know, as, as we as we move on to talking a little bit about non-surgical management, as we move on from the acute phase, once they start to get their leg control back, they've gotten their range of motion back, um, you know, what what are you looking at as far as return to play criteria for these for these patients if they're trying to get back to sport? I'm sure we're going to talk that about that a little bit later when we have our therapy episode, but talk a little bit about j- just on a surface level about where, where things progress after they've gotten through that initial phase. Yeah, so it's really getting back to the basics with that as well. Uh, once you hit the basics of getting the motion back to normal, so they should be equal to the other side. Extension comes back within days, if it, if not already there in the initial evaluation period. Flexion usually takes two or three weeks, depending on what the swelling looks like. And then you start working on some strengthening. And our strengthening goal is always quad focus because that's generally the the, the muscle that's going to be the weakest in this in this patient population. Not to say that other muscle groups cannot be weak, things like hips and hamstrings and things of that nature. But the quad is really what we hit first and foremost. So we do an isokinetic quad test on these patients when we deem them appropriate, which is usually right after the flexion is completed. So three, four weeks after the initial injury especially for first-time dislocators. And then we're working on strengthening on that single side to get the quad strength up to 90% or higher. So the things that we're really looking for, full motion equal to their side, minimal to no swelling, and 90% is the threshold that we're looking for in terms of the involved quad to the non-involved quad on the isokinetic test. And then a big thing with this patient population, similar to ACLs when it comes to return to sport, is going to be pushing them through some type of sports progression and having good tolerance with that. And going back to the mental side of things, this is something that I have seen with this patient population. I'm not sure if if other therapists would agree or you would agree if you've seen patients in this scenario, that the psychological aspect of return to sport can be difficult because of the trauma of them feeling their kneecap going out to the side and dislocating. And there is a real fear with these patients to get back to sports and, and not want that to happen again. And, you know, they read everywhere. And, and even us as healthcare professionals will tell them that if they're a first time dislocator and they treat it conservatively and they get back to sport, unfortunately, they are at a higher risk for a second dislocation. And, and that, I think, psychologically makes them a little more apprehensive to get back. Uh, so we do focus a little bit more at that late stage rehab with the sports progression before full return. Yeah, and the interesting thing is sometimes, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of pressure early on to decide, do I need surgery? If so, what kind of surgery do I need? And the nice thing about this is that these patients are acutely injured, just like ACLs, the ACLs are, a lot of other acute, acute problems, where if they're going to go on to surgery, we don't necessarily have to do acute surgery and operate on them right away. We have some time to uh, to start working on swelling control, to start working on leg control, to do that kind of early therapy. At the same time, they're getting more of their imaging work up and we're trying to figure out, is this a first time or recurrent problem? And these kind of processes can go on concurrently. So I noticed you mentioned imaging there when you said that the patients could be doing rehab while they're waiting for some imaging to come back or whatnot. So what are the imaging studies that you would typically order for this patient population? 
Yeah, there's definitely some some a lot of people talking about what to do based on MRI findings, CT findings, things like that, more advanced imaging studies. But for me, the the bread and butter uh, patellofemoral X-rays that we get, the plain X-rays that we get, really drive treatment a lot more than um, than the more advanced imaging studies do. So we start off with a, a three view of a weight bearing, 45 degree flexed PA view, a kind of tunnel view that can show you the joint spaces in profile as kind of a one that we do in, in everybody. Now that one, unfortunately, though, doesn't have much in the way of participation in the in the patellofemoral algorithm and management, but we still get, we'll go ahead and get that. We get lateral views of both knees, uh, and then we get a merchant's view. Uh, we like the merchant's view because it's at a little bit lower degree of flexion uh, than Houston views or sunrise views that uh, really get the knee more bent. We feel like there, if, the, if the knee gets into more flexion, you try to get an axial view, then the, the flexion kind of centers the patella, even in even in people who have patella alta, even in people who have lateral patella tilt, if you tilt the, if you tilt the knee into enough flexion, it will kind of center the patella. And we have, definitely have a lot of examples of that in our office where people have come in with sunrise views or Houston views when their knees bent 70, 80, 90 degrees uh, for that axial view uh, and the patella looks dead center. And then you back them off to emergence view at 45 degrees and the patella tilts a lot further laterally. So we definitely believe in the, uh, the merchant's view that lateral view is important for a couple of reasons. We like to assess the height of the patella. There's a lot of different ways to do that. Insol Savati ratio, Blackburn and Peel ratio, Catan de Champ, or however you say that. I don't know if anybody knows how to actually pronounce that. You know, all those ratios are important. And a, a lot of those are just trying to eliminate magnification error uh, and give us a, a, a normal anatomic reference point to kind of go off of. But we, we a lot of times just use the patella tendon length. We measure from the, uh, the insertion into the tibial tubercle to the inferior pole of the patella. And for, for males, that's usually around 50 millimeters. For females, it's around 45, 46. And we usually will utilize that as a uh, as kind of a normal to, that we can that we can uh, reference against. We then also for people who have confirmed patella instability or even suspected instability, we're not sure. We like to get a quad contraction lateral with the knee fully extended. So we have the patient fully extend their knee, fully contract their quad, and to see whether the patella comes up above the trochlea. On that lateral view, you can see where the, the kind of the end of the trochlea is more proximally, and the inferior articular surface of the patella should should be at about that level. And if the inferior articular surface of the patella is above the top of the trochlea, uh, a lot of times that can show, it can be kind of like a radiographic J sign that can show us that the with full terminal extension that the patella is coming out of the groove and maybe tilting laterally. Uh, and then we like to compare those side to side, especially if the patient says they've never had instability on the uninvolved knee. Uh, we like to look at that uninvolved knee to see, does the uninvolved involved patella sit in the middle where it's supposed to is it does it have any lateral overhang lateral tilt is the you know the back of the patella the median ridge of the patella sitting in the deepest part of the trochlea is the normal side actually normal or is the normal side sit too high does the normal side sit too far lateral or we can get an idea that the patient may have predisposing anatomic factors that may be playing into things versus if we look at the normal knee and it has a normal 
patella height uh, and does not sit laterally, then we think maybe it's a traumatic injury that just overcame their normal restraints. Um, so uh, really a lot of a, a lot of focus on on plane imaging, plane radiographs to be able to classify these and uh, uh, compartmentalize them to help guide management. When it comes to MRI scans, there are a couple things that we, we can see loose bodies on MRI scans better than we can on, on plane x-ray. A lot of times you can see them on plane x-ray if they have bone attached to them, which often they do. Uh, but if they if it's just a cartilage piece that is broken off, sometimes you can't see that on x-ray and you would need an MRI scan to be able to see that. The MRI scan can also allow us to directly visualize the medial retinacular injury and more severe degrees of medial retinacular injury. A lot of times we'll pretend a, a worse outcome and trying to get that to heal non-surgically. A lot of people talk about using CT scans for rotational positioning to measure things like the uh, the tibial tubercle to trochlear groove ratio, the TTTG, or excuse me, not ratio, the, the TTTG measurement. Uh, that's not a measurement that we really use in our algorithm, but it's another advantage imaging study that some people utilize for patellofemoral dislocations and instability. Yeah, this is one area in physical therapy education that that we are just not uh, educated enough on, I don't think, in, in terms of looking at imaging and being able to decipher what things mean. And, and I've just I've learned so much since I've started working at the Shell Warm Knee Center, and especially when it comes to these patellar dislocations, because I've learned over the years that there's there's a lot to learn about the patient based on not only what the x-ray shows, but how it compares to the other side. And, and I know we'll get into that when it comes to the classifications and what that classification may lead to when it comes to surgery. But one image that I've always in particular thought was fascinating that I have never seen before until I got here was, uh, especially on a consistent basis with this population, was the quad contraction lateral view. What's your opinion or, or just speak to what your thoughts are on why that's an important view and why it would be needed in addition to just getting your typical 60 degree lateral view? What, what does that show you that the others don't? Well, we try to look at patella alta as kind of a constellation of findings rather than one specific number. Uh, some people will use one of those ratios that I spoke about before that above this level, they consider that to be um, to be patella alta or in below this level, it does not. We try to look at it from a lot of different perspectives. We look at the patella tendon length on a 60 degree lateral view. We, looked at, we look at the inferior articular surface of the patella and its relationship to Blumensatz line. Usually the bottom of the patella articular surface will be in line uh, we're at the level of uh, Blumensatz line. Uh, on, so we look at that as well. And then we look at the J sign on physical exam to see if they have a J sign that the, that the patella comes out of the trochlea in full extension. And then we'll look at that quad contraction lateral to see if that inferior articular surface of the patella is above the level of the trochlea. And all those will be put together kind of a con as a constellation of findings to determine whether or not we think the patient has patella alta and whether that predisposing anatomy, predisposing anatomy uh, could be leading to their symptoms. In addition to that, we utilize that information when we're talking about uh, surgical treatment, especially as it relates to distalizations, to actually cutting the tibial tubercle and moving the patella distally. Uh, we use some of those measurements to be able to guide our treatment and uh, and figure out exactly how, how far down we're going to move somebody. So after you get all those views and you synthesize all that information to be able to come up with a conclusion about these these patients, we end up putting them into a classification system based on those findings. Can you talk a little bit about what that classification system is? Yeah, we really use really mainly two 
different x-ray views to make the classification. Uh, we use the lateral view of the uninvolved knee, and then we use the bilateral merchant's view to really come up with the classification. So one is to decide, does the patient have predisposing anatomy, yes or no? And the other one is to look side to side at the merchant's view and say, does the patient have symmetry, yes or no? And with those two factors, then we can separate the patients into four types. Uh, the first, and it's important uh, to call them types and not grades. We, we try to avoid calling them grade one, grade two, because then it seems like they're gradations of the same the, of the same entity, when in reality, we think these are different things, just different types. So we use, we use the word types, not grades. Type one are the patients who have symmetry and have no predisposing anatomy. So you look at that, you look at, at all those factors for patella alta, you say they do not have patella alta. You look at the lateral view of the uninvolved knee does not have patella alta. You look at the merchant's view and they're symmetric. And that when you look at the uninvolved knee, uh, you feel like the, the, the uninvolved knee is normal. Um, so in that case, they don't have patella alta. They don't have lateral tilt or subluxation on the normal side. And the injured knee looks the same as the uninjured knee. So those patients have no predisposing anatomy and are symmetric. So those would be type one. Type two would be patients who still have no predisposing anatomy if we look at the normal knee, but they have asymmetry on that merchant's view. So this would be a patient who, when you make your measurements, you do not think they have patella alta. You look at that normal knee, uninvolved knee, and there's no lateral patella tilt subluxation. Uh, so you think the la uh, that other knee is normal, no predisposing anatomy. But when you look at the injured knee, it is tilted and sublux laterally uh, compared to the, to the uninjured knee. Uh, so those are the kind of the two simpler ones are people who have no predisposing anatomy and they're either, either symmetric type one or asymmetric type two. When it moves into types three and four, these patients do have some sort of predisposing anatomy. And we don't really make any distinction on what that predisposing anatomy is. So if somebody is high, but their patellas, both patellas are sitting in the middle where they're supposed to be, and it's just isolated patella alta. We don't distinguish that from patients who have a normal height and just have lateral patella tilt and subluxation. We kind of group those together as predisposing anatomy. So type three, those patients that have predisposing anatomy, but they have symmetry. So we look and they're either high or they're, or they're tilted laterally on the uninvolved side, but both knees look the same. And then in type four, those are patients that have predisposing anatomy and they have asymmetry. So we look at the opposite knee, the uninjured knee, it may be high or sitting laterally that shows us that it has predisposing anatomy. Uh, and when we look at the injured knee on that merchant's view, it looks further lateral than the uninvolved side and has has asymmetry. So it, it, it it's, it's a lot of moving parts on what you consider to be predisposing anatomy or not, what you consider to be symmetric or asymmetric, but it at least allows us to put them into kind of four buckets of type one being no predisposing anatomy and symmetry, type two being no predisposing anatomy, but asymmetry on the merchant's view, type three being yes, predisposing anatomy, but symmetry on that merchant's view, and then type four being predisposing anatomy and asymmetry on the merchant's view. And you may not have these numbers off the top of your head, but just in general sense, do you feel like there's one type that's more prevalent or one type that's definitely more rare than the others? 
Yeah, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but we have looked at a group. I looked at, uh, sat down and measured me and a and a, uh, a medical student sat down once and tried to look at interrelator reliability and intrarelator right rater reliability between the two of us and found that it had good reliability once we both sat down with the same set of x-rays. And the majority of patients were in grades two, or excuse me, types two, I just broke my own rule, put in, in types two and type four, uh, which is the, you know, type two does not have predisposing anatomy, but has asymmetry and type four has predisposing anatomy and asymmetry. The majority of the time, when you look at that merchant's view, the injured knee looks different than the uninjured knee. Uh, those ones that have no predisposing anatomy and symmetry in groups one and three uh, types one and three, those were less common. So throughout your career, Ab, you've started to use this classification system. What, what do you feel is the biggest benefit of using something like this? Well, classification systems have a, a couple different advantages. I think, uh, you know, it's it's always interesting when people can say, you know, I classify them in this way and they can call it the, the Scott Bauman classification or whatever and stamp their name on it. But classification systems really exist uh, for for a few reasons. One is to, to, to just be able to group things uh, by common features. It's hard if you just think about patella instability as a whole uh, to, to come up with a lot of plans. Uh, but if we're able to compartmentalize them into different types that does allow us to think, well, what do I want to do with this type versus this type versus this type versus this type? Uh, and it also helps to facilitate communication and research. If I tell somebody that I have, you know, for, for tibial plateau fractures, for example, if I tell somebody that they have a split depression fracture of the lateral tibial plateau, that that's very descriptive and I can tell them that. But if I tell someone they have a Schatzker two, then People know what that means when it comes to tibial plateau fractures, and it allows us to be able to communicate more easily. The other one does it does help to facilitate research that when we look at patella dislocations as a whole, we can start to look at factors that we think are important to separate those different patients and then say, let's look at the results of this surgery for this specific type of patella instability. Uh, so it does help to facilitate us uh, looking at results to, to look at research. And then eventually we want to, we want some sort, something that helps us to guide surgical management. If we end up coming up with 10 different classifications, we have types one through 10 and we say, well, what do you do with types one through seven? Uh, we do the same operation. What do you do with types eight through 10? Um, we actually do the same operation. And if, and if it doesn't separate them and we don't manage them in different ways, then the classification system doesn't really, doesn't really help us much. So I think the classification allows us to compartmentalize them into groups to think about them separately. I think it allows us to potentially facilitate communication, to facilitate research by us all knowing what we're talking about and being able to separate them in that way. And then obviously, most importantly, to be able to guide our surgical management if it ends up coming to that. Excellent. Yeah, th this classification system is one that I've uh, personally always liked because it's it, it puts things into a sense that makes it pretty clear. And I know, you know, at first this can be a little confusing and um, complicated, but when you when you boil it down and classify these types into one, two, three, or four, I, I think it paints a, a pretty clear picture of what you're dealing with. Which, as you mentioned, that the benefits of having a classification system in general is really guiding towards some type of specific surgical management, which uh, will be coming in the next couple episodes. So we do have a multiple part series 
coming forward about Patel from oil instability. We covered the the evaluation and the classification system tonight. We're going to be getting into the history and the development. We're going to be hitting the uh, surgical techniques for what surgery may be done based on these classifications. We're going to touch a little bit on the postoperative rehab based on the surgeries that can be done. And then lastly, we'll look at some outcomes uh, for these three types of surgeries that we're going to do. That's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us. As always, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast. We have a YouTube and Facebook page for the Shelburne East Center podcast that we'd love to have you visit as well. If you're on Apple Podcasts or any of your podcast platforms, if you could leave us a review so those that come behind you can see what you've liked about it, we would appreciate it. And also subscribe and hit that follow button so you won't miss out on any episodes here in the future. So thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you again next week. (music) 